I, I feel at times equated to some like a little bit of like a relativism universalist practice as a mental health professional and that's that's the oil to their water and so that's why I'm being rejected I've never seen a more polarized time in my lifetime as I have in the last 18 to 24 months it comes back to vulnerability and transparency with a leader to say I need I need uh, some people that have expertise in the area of mental health uh, to help me as a pastor. Uh, you know, sometimes it's not safe for the pastor to go first. There's lots of condemnation or judgment or there's narcissism that's in the way. There's a lot of barriers, but the power of just saying, hey, I'll go first. Let me talk about me and sit up here with my coach. Talk about the benefit is so extremely we are two unique female professionals and friends that have come together to have meaningful conversations and a little fun along the way. Welcome to the Arable Podcast, where curious minds grow. I'm your host, Jenna Mountain, and I'm your other host, Kimberly Galindo. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Arable. I'm so excited about this episode today. We have the a fantastic Tim Ross joining us today to have a really fun conversation. Um, but before we jump into our conversation, give y'all a little backstory on Mr. Tim Ross. Um, he and his lovely wife, Juliette, lead Embassy City Church, uh, which is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Irving, Texas. Um, Tim speaks both nationally and internationally. He has authored the book, Upset the World. Go out and buy it. I highly recommend it. Um, where he invites readers to upset the world through breaking down barriers and building relationships. Uh, Tim has been married to his lovely wife since 99, so they've got a few years, just a few, uh, of marriage under their belt. And they have two fantastic sons, Nathan and Noah. So that's a little bit of the formal about our fantastic guest today. Tim, it is such a delight and privilege for me to have you on. We are dear friends. And so I feel like I'm just sitting with a buddy. Um, if this weren't digital, this is just coffee and hanging out as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. I'm so grateful to be here with you all. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to bring you on the podcast to unpack dialogue, nuance the conversation that you and I have often, to be honest. You and I, you and I talk about these two worlds a lot and where they collide and where they can work together and where they struggle. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to talk about mental health and the church today. Um, faith, mental health. I know, right? Like, we need to be talking about this more often. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, but before we get started, I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. We've given the formal bio, but you introduce yourself like you always do so well. Yeah, so I am Tim Ross. I was born and raised in Southern California. And uh, moved to Dallas, Texas in 1997. One-way Greyhound bus ticket, two and a half days. And um, I love that story. Thank you. Uh, I gave my life to Jesus January 14th of 1996. And in the first 24 months, um, realized in the Pentecostal background that I grew up in uh, that altar calls uh, were not the end-all, be-all that uh, every preacher and evangelist sold me on. Uh, altar calls were basically 
the place where the can of worms got opened, uh, but then nobody mm. knew how to process after that. So after about 24 months uh, into my uh, walk, um, I decided to get some counseling. And uh, 23, 23 years later, I'm still in some form of counseling or therapy. I'm a lifer as it relates to it. I think every person on earth needs a good masseuse and a good therapist. I love that so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I really I really do think every nuclear warhead could be disarmed if everybody had a good masseuse and a good therapist. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. I'll buy it. I'll quote, it. I'll quote you. I'll be like, T.Roz, everyone needs a good masseuse and a good therapist. Just so that. good. Yeah. So good. I hope that helps. It does. It does. It gives us a little background on t- as to why you would be such a valuable voice. Thank you. Well, let's dive in. Big topic, church, mental health. We obviously know you're, you're pro. We're very biasedly pro because we are mental health providers ourselves um, <laughs> and, and Jesus followers. Um, how receptive do you think the church and faith communities are towards naming mental health needs, pursuing mental health services. Um, like today. Today. As we sit here today in church and faith communities, what do you think the temperature is on being receptive to just saying, hey, I need a good therapist. I'm open to that. I'm going to pursue that. What's your, I, what's your perspective? My perspective is that it's warming. Mm-hmm. So... If we take an analogy, you know, let's just say uh, we put the church in the microwave and uh, we set a timer to see how long it's going to take for them to really heat up to the topic of mental health and the church. I would say it, it we would need to put it on seven minutes and it's been in there 45 seconds. Mm. So it's yeah. warming, but it's still more cold than it is warm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I think the 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 only reason why it's being the conversation being pushed to the forefront now is that uh, we see the impact it's actually having on leadership, right? We see oh, we see past yeah we see we see pastors that are actually committing suicide. We see pastors that are resigning from their positions not because of infidelity, not not because of some um, you know narcissistic you know. Uh, ego-centric issue, it's because they're burnt out. And they're like, you know what? I cannot possibly handle this anymore and still be sane. So that's just starting to happen in the last five years. And if this conversation would have been a part of the uh, cyclical diet of Uh, church in terms of you're going to hear about grace every year. You're going to hear about salvation every year. You're going to hear about faith every year. We should have been hearing about mental health every year. I don't know how you can get through, you know, a third of Psalms and not realize this is a counseling session (laughs) that we all get to peek in on. So um, there's enough Bible there for it, but it's been interesting to see where, um, leaders and and people in the faith community have finally said that's also me instead of just pointing to david or pointing to 
Elijah, who winds up depressed under a tree and wants to commit, well, he wants to Mm -hmm. die. He doesn't want to pull the trigger, but he does want to die, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of just pointing to those people in the Bible, now we're starting to see people go, hey, that's what happened with Elijah, and let me tell you how it happened with him as well. Yeah. So it's warming. Long answer. (laughs) It's funny, as you're giving that word picture, I'm having an experience on the side of the person who put the thing in the microwave. And I don't know. I'm, I mean, I am not singularly the therapist who put the church warming up in the microwave, but I'm just having this experience <laughs> where I'm thinking about that word picture. And I, I am sure all of us here have pulled something out that felt piping hot on the outside, but you cut into the middle of it. And it was still frozen in the middle. And yeah. that was a very rude experience. Yeah. Like not yeah. good. Yeah. And I, I do feel like that's how mental health professionals feel. Good. To throw that out there for dialogue. No, that's because, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I'm like, oh, that's piping hot, and maybe that's because there are pockets and congregations and leaders like yourself that are really um, teaching the need putting it out there, redeeming that this is not anti your faith or the church and, and right. giving permission. So that feels so smoking hot on the outside. But then I go over here and have this experience and I'm, I get a very cold response. Right. And it's, it doesn't feel good for anybody. And yeah. so that's where the word picture went for me. Yeah. No, that's, that's enlightening because it's true. You know, you can step in one church and see, progress in that area and see a leader that's, you know, being a champion for it, right? Talking about their own therapy and their own work that they're doing. And I can, I can speak as a pastor, I can go to a conference and step in a green room and be in there with three other speakers that would never dare step into an office of a therapist Mm -hmm. for a myriad of reasons. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a lot of work still to be done. Yeah. What's the microwave? Like, if we could just run with this word picture. Yeah. What um, What is the mechanism that's warming it up? I think the vul- I think vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I think vulnerability of people, not not even leaders. Like when, you know, it's it's hard to run from uh, your sixteen year old daughter, who you have to commit to. Mm-hmm you know, a rehab center, um, and then not face this, right? It's hard to, it's hard to, uh, ignore this when, you know, your, your spouse goes into a different season of life and she needs more than her, you know, women's once a day vitamin, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? You know, Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a myriad of, of, of life issues that, people are now talking about more openly than they have in the past. And it's, and it's helping, it's helping to push the dialogue to the forefront where it should have always been. Uh, But in the past, it was just easier to hide. Yeah. So I think the microwave is just life. (laughs) Yeah. I work with, with, well, humans, people, lots of them are church members. And many of them will ask me like, where do I find other people who really love Jesus, but think what I'm doing is okay. 
because they find themselves in churches that they feel condemned for seeking mental health and the things that they're learning in their mental health experience as far as their local body is concerned is anti the church mm. you know and i'm talking about things like boundaries um <laughs> like boundaries with i mean we're talking about like what for you and i tim and kimberly like we would say the basics but right they're, exactly they're, you know they really are getting condemned for like I don't want to be there every time the doors open. I I have a limit to my energy. I'm an introvert. This is not helping me flourish. I need something different than what you have operationalized as the gospel. Like I and so I know we're all in agreement, but I my heart breaks on a weekly basis when I sit with these clients they're like I'm not allowed to be healthy in my church and they're like realizing that. Mm. Oh, that's heartbreaking to hear. I mean, it really is because um, we have no idea as leaders um, how simple Jesus made this to be mm. and how absolutely convoluted we have materialized it as. Um, I always tell people that, you know, uh, the, the, the cross of Calvary is very, very simple. It's a hill and you go up it. And you get Jesus, right? Jack and Jill made it up the hill, right? It's like it, it seems simple, um, but but we've we've turned a a hill. He wasn't on a mountain, right? That would be different. That would be for like, oh, you have to really be somebody to if you're really going to be a disciple of Jesus, you got to climb Everest, right? Not everybody can climb Everest. Everybody can get up a hill, okay? Even Jack and Jill. But when you put an American ninja warrior obstacle course in between the base of that hill and the top wow. and say, this is our membership requirements, this is what it means to us for you to really receive discipleship formation, and that gets discouraging very quickly. And if we won't honor people's journey in mental health in that mm. regard, oh, we are just, we're not helping the gospel flourish. We're, we're slowing it down drastically. Mm-hmm. That word picture kind of cracked open a bunch of stuff in my head. That's not just about mental health. That obstacle course represents a lot of stuff. Oh, yes, it does. Minorities, wow. women. <laughs> you could throw anything in there. Yeah. It's in there. Gosh. So I have a two part question that probably each in and of themselves could be an entire podcast, so we're gonna we're gonna have to rein ourselves in. But Okay. okay. Um I want to ask you generally with both of them how you have seen like the historical change, I guess this first 45 seconds in the microwave, like what's changed, like um, as far as the church being open to this idea of mental health um, and pursuing it. But I have two different pieces and part, part of, partly because I think the last 18 months, 
has been really unique and significant. And so I, I, that's a part of my question. Yeah. Um, but I'm actually interested in your perspective prior to the pandemic as well. Um, well, the multi-pandemic. Let's let's do that, because. And mo- and actually, a lot of believers who are therapists have not been exposed to this. But there's like a whole like you know you go to like seminary and you like study church history. Mm-hmm. There's like a whole history of mental health in the church that most people don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, Tim, you and I have not had this conversation as friends. Like, I'm not sure how much you know about that storyline, but it is where, like, there are camps that have split off in. Christian counseling or faith-based mental health, where you have everything from what we call new thetic right. to integrated, and and all of these camps have a different stance, and there are really strong feelings, and it has a lot to do with how church history played out, and where the fights have, um, kind of come about in that. So I I would be interested in your perspective, both from a pre-pandemic, tell me about the 45 seconds in the microwave. What is shifting? What is changing? And then what do you think the pandemic has done to the church as it sees and receives or fights back on mental health? Well, I I would love to hear more about um, the the influence that church history played on, you know, how these camps disperse. That just sounds like an interesting um, conversation that we need to have. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I can point you to one major contributing factor as to why the church changed and is warming up. And uh, it is the wonderful millennials. That generation literally made uh, made the church pivot because uh, Gen X, which is me, I'm a hybrid, right? So I'm in in between... um, uh, boomers and millennials, so I understand them both. And as a good middle child, I know how to be a bridge. Okay, so um, uh, millennials forced boomers to talk. And so when you look at when you look at this generationally, um, the boomers' parents were the silent generation. Well, they were called the silent generation for a reason. They didn't talk about nothing. Okay, so. Everything that the boomer generation found out, they found out about it and went loud about it, <laughs> right? They're like, oh my goodness, sex is amazing. We should all have it, right? Yep. We should all have peace and not war. We should also smoke weed, right? We should also do some heroin. I mean, it was just, they were just out there. And and uh, we're, we're the greatest innovators, right? So they, that, the silent generation gave birth to boomers. Boomers gave birth to exes. We are the latchkey kids. We learn how to figure stuff out on our own. Our parents wasn't coming home for two and a half more hours. And by the time they came home, we had fed ourselves and we had done some homework if we were a little buttoned up. And we had played outside and didn't die, didn't get kidnapped, came back. Okay. <laughs> It really uh, is a wonder that any of us are here. Oh, <laughs> like, I mean, I we, about it. the grace of God for each generation is amazing. So millennials come and millennials are, 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 are this, is this incredible generation that was like, listen, we want to do stuff as a team. Um, we got trophies and 
kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, we're all valuable. We're all important. Every story that we um, have matters. And we want to be transparent and vulnerable with each other. And so we want to know the ingredient list, Chipotle, right? I call it Tell Chipotle because that's, that's how my kids always say it. So if you, <laughs> if you correct me and say, it is not Chipotle, it's Chipotle. It's Chipotle in this house, okay? So, um, uh, you know, so we want the ingredients, right? Super Size Me comes out and we find out, you, you know, McDonald's fries doesn't have three ingredients, you know, vegetable oil, salt, and potatoes. It has 45 ingredients. And now everybody's like, no, we'll never touch that again. So this thought of transparency and vulnerability and we're going to put everything on the label and we're going to we're going to tell you up front who we are and for better or for worse, right? You, you know, yeah. um, Paris Hilton, uh, the socialite, makes a porn tape, but then also becomes a darling because she told everybody and, you know, and I was abused mm -hmm. and y'all didn't know it. And, oh, man, we, we're endeared. And she told us the truth. And then so those people gave their life to Jesus at youth camp and then they came to church. And they kept listening to the sermons of the pastor and going, you keep telling us what Jesus said. What about you? Mm. You haven't told us anything about you. Or all the ingredients. Or all the ingredients. What's behind why you do all this? Give us the why to why there's no women in ministry. Give us the why to why you have no uh, minorities in leadership. Give us the, we don't just, we're not just taking... The previous generation, we're going to ask you no questions. We want the ingredient list and we want to know why. So yeah. I believe millennials played a huge part in pressing the church on vulnerability and transparency. Wow. And they deserve major kudos for it. I love that. So that's I don't, the first half. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told you this, Tim, but I... Um, the, I'm like right on the line, but because of like where my family was like socioeconomically when I was younger and the town that I lived in and just all of that, I feel more like a Gen Xer than I do a millennial, but mm -hmm. like that category of exennial or elder millennial, that one. I right, right. Like, go, go watch those TikToks. You're good. Elder um, millennials. I love it. There's a comedian out there with a, with a, a, a sketch on being an elder millennial and speak to your elders appropriate. It's great. It's so fantastic. Um, I will find it. And my favorite is the Oregon Trail generation because I do identify with that list. Like I yep. put the actual floppy disk in like yes. the big square thing and played Oregon Trail at, at school. And that's the only time I touched a computer. Like that's me. Um, That would be me. But I, I so appreciate that. And I love how you honored you just so beautifully modeled honoring all those generations because they, they all do have value. And I think sometimes people don't know how to talk about the generational differences in a, in an honoring way. So that's, that's helpful. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, so that's the, that's the first half. The second, can you give me the second half again? I want to make sure I. Yeah. Specifically the pandemic last 18 months. Because I, it's had a huge. I mean, people are using mental health as a reason to make decisions. People are using, I mean, a lot politically in the church system, whatnot. We are seeing a rise in mental health needs. Um, Kimberly and I could both insert here that there is a mental health shortage mm -hmm. um, that some people may or may not know about. Like we have wait lists, and a lot of the people we know have wait lists, and that is 
it's not always that way. It's not really been that way until the pandemic. And and so like when I refer someone to someone, I tell them get on the wait list. Like normally I'd be like, Hey, just keep calling till you find someone without one. Cause there's always someone without one. That is not the case right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I love the, the, the way you contextualized it earlier, Jenna, by calling it, um, a multi pandemic. Yeah. Uh, in the last 18 months, in my lifetime, I'm 46 years old, in, in, in my lifetime, I have never experienced um, a period of time, less than 24 months, where racism, politics, physical health, and mental health were all one A. Right, not one, two, three, four. <laughs> not one A, B, C, D. One A, one A, one A, one A. And so when you have all of those um, at the surface, above the surface, at the same time, it's, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Oh, yeah. And... Um, you know, Simone Biles makes a decision <laughs> not to compete because she didn't feel it. And instead of that being, well, <laughs> you always, we did have some people that commented that she, it was un-American and she quit on the, the country and all this kind yeah. of stuff. But, but NBC wound up doing feature coverage of mental health and talking to other athletes that could identify with Simone Biles for the decision that she made. So the fact that the dialogue is permeating culture now, one of my concerns, and this is, I think, you know, anybody with a shepherd's heart or a leader who's protective, my concern is that people are getting the right information and are they going to get the right treatment? Because social media is a horrible mental health venue, (laughs) okay? Uh, You know, clicking follow on a person who's vulnerable about their bipolarism. Or recaps their therapy session. Or recaps their therapy session. Yeah, exactly. It's not helping the 1.4 million followers this individual has. That's the thing that's crazy. What I realize is there's such a dearth of leadership in the world that people have just basically, I think at a subconscious level, resigned themselves to the fact that I'm not going to make it to the promised land, so let me follow somebody who can get me across the street. Wow. Is it you? Will you help me across the street? At least I won't be here anymore. And so you look at who's influencing right now and how many people they influence and you just go, that's sad. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And what, and the place that we're putting them in our lives. They are our. Oh, yes. It is a a one way for them. For the 95% of it, I realize some people jump in their DMs. It is a one-way, I'm talking at you, 
what leadership, what are we saying? Leadership coaching, mental health therapist, yes. coach, like whatever, like these people. Yeah. To, to use your words due to a lack of leadership in the world. That's where Dude, we're turning. That That's where we're turning. So we're turning to people who give us a glimpse of what we feel like we don't even have. And we attach ourselves to them. And it's never been easier to do since the advent of this. The phone. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. the listeners. Yeah. Wow. What poignant words. <laughs> and it lacks every, talking about the ingredient list, it lacks everything that you need to get to where you actually need to be. Relationship, vulnerability. Yeah. Expertise, Kimberly. I even talk about it. Yeah, even in my own space, you know, preaching. I just did a message on sexuality um, uh, at a church that has a huge following. So as of right now, over a hundred thousand people have viewed that message. Um, my Instagram DMs are overloaded. I bet because the message opened up a can of worms. And now they want to sort them and it doesn't even click to them. I need to find somebody I can physically get in front of. They DM me and say, Hey, I know this is a long shot, but could we talk? Your message spoke to me. And it's like the fact that they would go to their phones before they would go to a person in their community to talk to just lets you know how how addictive, connected, dysfunctional this thing has become for so many people. Mm-hmm. That now I'm going to try from, you know, Schenectady, New York. <laughs> I'm going to try to get to the guy that I watched on TV to help me as opposed to going... I wonder if there's somebody in Schenectady, New York, that can help me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that that's the train of thought, that's the logic, it's, it's, a, it's dysfunctional. It is. I want to go back to, because I feel like there's so much more there, the multi-pandemic whack-a-mole issue You've kind of unpacked the dynamics as you've observed them. What do you think it's done to the relationship between mental health and the church specifically? I think um, the last 18 months has um, polarized people. Uh, because the last 18 months um, has been absolutely polarizing. I've never seen a more polarized time in my lifetime as I have in the last 18 to 24 months. And so as it relates to racial issues, you're on one side or, or, or another. As it relates to political issues, you're on one side or another. As it relates to health issues, you're on one side or another. So as it relates to mental health, you're on one side or another. So I don't think it's it's done us a disservice. This much polarization leads to more polarization. Um, 
we, we live in a world that um, does not do integration well <laughs> in a in a in a in a world of in a in a nation of open borders right where everyone is invited to come experience the American dream we don't do integration well we've never done assimilation well we've told people they can come and stay who they are so you've never invite you've you've invited people to come experience the American dream their way. You don't have to give up your language. You don't have to give up your culture. You don't have to give up anything. Just stay you, but be us. <laughs> we'll switch out your red passport for a blue one, right? We'll switch out your green one for a blue one. You can just learn enough English to get by, but it's you can just be you, and we'll be us, and then we'll discriminate you. Up. Uh, along those lines, because when we give you this paperwork, there's going to be 26 boxes and you better fill out which one you are. <laughs> oh. Right. The non-Latino box is one of my my the most humorous boxes in all ethnic identifiers. Right. So you're either Hispanic or you have to prove by a box you have no Hispanic in you at all. <laughs> it's the worst box I've ever seen in my life. So. Uh, African-Americans aren't nuanced. My wife is Afro-Caribbean. She doesn't even get to check that box. She just has to be Afro-American, so her story's not told. Uh, white is just white or Caucasian. Uh, we don't get to be Polish, Russian, uh, English, Scottish, nothing. So it's a, a, a world that should be um, a nation, I should I should say, that 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 should have taught us how to uh, integrate better and assimilate better um, reminds us of who we are not at every turn mm-hmm. and divides us at every turn. You, you, you either, you went to Texas A&M, oh snap, I went to, you know, TCU. And so I don't like you, right? So uh, you, you, you went to Wendy's and I went to Burger King and I cannot understand for the life of me why you would want a square patty. Um, and I can't for the life of me understand why you would want to see black lines on your burger meat. And so I don't like you. And so you were raised in this neighborhood and I was raised in this neighborhood. So I don't like you. So so the, the last we 18 raised- months. So are you saying that we were raised to connect over divisiveness? Absolutely. Yeah, and like you're naming some like piddly things. On purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your, your point is landing, sir. <laughs> right? I mean, think about think about uh, the the I, I thought about two converging things. So just let me get this out in 45 seconds. So you go to a junior, you're in middle school. You're a seventh grader. Your brain is so far from being developed and baked. You you can barely figure out what to wear to school. You don't know what to do with your face. You don't know what to do with your your clothes. You don't know what to do with your backpack, okay? And before that brain can form, you have a rivalry with another school. Mm -hmm. You are rivals with another school. It's not... Hey, we play another team. No, no, you that we can't stand that team. 
and we got to beat them. And we have a pep rally to pep you up to get hyped about another school you know nothing about. It's just a JV basketball game. Okay? Put that on top of that same undeveloped seventh grade brain going to a Sadie's Hawkins dance or a rental formal. Why were we teaching 12-year-olds to date and put the pressure, the complication of mating, of choosing a partner in seventh grade? <laughs> what? What? I, I barely know what to do with my body and my life and I'm now I have the pressure of will a girl actually ask me out? Will the girl I want to ask me out ask me out? Do I have my parents are now buying me a dress for the winter formal? I'm in eighth grade. That's so funny. So all this is happening to us at ages and stages where it's getting into our subconscious before we can even think, why would I be, I need to focus on my work. I can't be thinking about a relationship. You don't get to college until you realize I have to focus on my studies. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't handle a relationship right now, but you've been through five since seventh grade. Yeah. And they've already broke your heart and changed your mind and made you have trust issues and made you have, you, you know, major yep. you know body image issues because you know the, the the dork in ninth grade told you your breath stunk and you couldn't recover for two years right so you have listerine everywhere <laughs> <laughs> so so i'm just thinking wrong. yeah so i'm just thinking like i'm just thinking of the 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 myriad of ways we have been trained to look for differences. Yeah. What school did you go to? What neighborhood did you grow up in? What oh uh what what postgrad work did you do? What huh, 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 what diet are you on? You're you're keto or I'm whole 30. I don't understand you keto people. I don't understand you sugarless people. Bread is awesome. I mean, everything is a thing. It Yeah, I, I'm sitting here listening and evaluating how many how many what I thought were benign experiences growing up going, oh, we've just been trained to capitalize on differences, to connect on shared divisiveness. What would we have expected to happen over the last 18 months? And then we expect them to walk into a mental health space where that ethic is the antithesis of all of that connection, vulnerability, non-judgmental stance, differentiation, boundaries, all of these things that are not what we've been developing in. Right. Of course, we have oil and water that won't mix. You yeah, know, absolutely. this is a difficult thing to swallow because I, as a mental health provider, am inviting you into connection that looks at the and and the nuance versus either or you yeah. or me, us or them. That's right. Um, yeah. And, and, and so and so it's the reason why a speech as brilliant as I have a dream has not been realized. Mm-hmm. It, it, this was the, the simplest marching order we could have ever been given. <laughs> mm. 
but our but our own country was not systematically nor systemically built to support that vision. No. I want to I want to add a follow-up question here. Cuz as we're talking this is what's coming up for me reflecting on this idea that we've been raised to focus on the differences, trained to connect over divisive, shared divisiveness, meaning like, I don't like them, you don't like them, oh, we're buddies, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. The creation of echo chambers. I mean, I could layer the, the words here. Um, and knowing that, that kind of like what you were saying, Kimberly, like what we're trying to model and teach and invite in mental health is like oil and water, those things. One of the, I I think I've heard it, although I couldn't give you a a quote today, but it's also just a very deeply felt sense that sometimes not the overt message, but the covert message from church leadership. I sense, Tim, that churches are afraid, generally of science, which we are connected with the scientific world, um, but afraid of mental health professionals. And and I'll just say I get the sense because I don't have a quote to offer. I get the sense that they are afraid that people will lose their faith if they get healthy. Mm. Those are my words. That's not how they would say it. But that's what I, like, they are so afraid that if you learn your boundaries that's going to mess up your faith. If you learn how to do both and that you'll, you'll, you'll be believed. I don't, I don't know. It's almost like sometimes we get equated to some, and and we're all believers of Jesus Christ and, and, you know, Christians here. So like, I, I feel at times equated to some, like a little bit of like a relativism universalist practice as a mental health professional. And that's, that's the oil to their water. And so that's why I'm being rejected and like what I can do with the church. Wow. <laughs> that landed on me heavy. Cause here's what that, what you just said brought up for me, Jenna. Um, it brought up the battles that we have with egos. Mm-hmm. Um, it brought up the battles that we have with our own personal doctrines. Yeah. We're not even talking about theological stuff now. We're just talking about the doctrine you've built for yourself uh, to protect yourself and or imprison yourself. Um, and I, I feel like... Uh, what you said also brings up um, the fear of not being in control. Totally. And so as I'm processing what you're saying, I'm going, wow, I do know a lot of leaders that would have a problem with their congregation being healthy because that would mean, first of all, you're not the private, you're not the only voice speaking to them. Mm-hmm. 
that feels like a loss of control. Um, you, you might self-differentiate, as Kimberly uh, stated, uh, to the point that you need a boundary from me. You might find out this. <laughs> this is so good. You might find out I'm unhealthy. <laughs> you might realize I'm a narcissist. Uh-oh. 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 You, you, you might find out that I have an unhealthy and insatiable need to be needed. And then will you still like me after that? And will, will you still be able to receive from me after that? Oh, you, yeah, that's, now that's the can of worms that needs to be opened. That is the can of worm that needs to be open. I can't tell you how many lives have been changed by the recommendation of the book. And I'm going to mess up the title, so I'll look it up while we're talking. By Chuck, is it DeGroat? Um, when Narcissism Finds the Church? or mm. um, And he does such a good job of it because he, he talks about, there's like, like diagnosably categorically the narcissist, but he said, but we're all capable of narcissistic tendencies. And it's good to see that. And, and, and the reason he got into this work is because, um, by God's grace, a mentor in his life, right. As he was young, married and about to get into ministry, he said, you are, I think he basically told them, you're going to destroy your relationship with your wife if you keep doing this. And it was about their marriage, but it was also about, like, you're acting like a narcissist and called him out. And so he became this expert on, you know, how narcissism wow. gets fostered and created and all of that in the church. Yeah. I, I you know, I just feel like um, we have not, I'm speaking on behalf of the church at this point, okay? We have not done a good job raising our hands and saying we have limitations as leaders. Y'all haven't been allowed to. Like, I would call out leaders just as much as I would defend them. In this oh, moment. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I remember uh, we planted our church in, you know, September of 2015. And um, the first four years... In the first four years, I almost quit. By the fourth year, I was like, you know what? I'm done. Right? Uh, and what I realized was I had to fire myself as the CEO of the organization. And remember that my calling didn't come with an MBA. Mm. I wish it did. <laughs> I wish the anointing also translated into a master's of business administration. It simply didn't. Um, we, we also need to acknowledge that um, a calling to communicate the gospel didn't put letters behind our name. Yeah. It didn't put PhD and LMT and all the other letters that really speak to what goes on in the brain, in the mind, in the soul. And that if we're not partnering with those people, um, to help our churches be well-rounded, we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're burning ourselves out because now we're stepping into territory and into waters 
that we are not um, strong enough to wait. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I just feel like, again, it comes back to vulnerability and transparency with a leader to say, I need, I need uh, some people that have expertise in the area of uh, mental health uh, to help me as a pastor. You know, I did a, I did a, um, a whole series on this, I think in 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first weekend, I actually had Nancy Houston uh, with me. Mm-hmm. And we actually sat side by side and interviewed because I wasn't about to go into a whole conversation about the limbic system. Right. I wasn't about to break down the Hebrew uh, meaning of amygdala because there is none. (laughs) (laughs) I needed somebody that had expertise to talk about, uh, you know, what they what they knew. And then I could give the, the biblical and theological support to go with it. But sitting side by side with one of my therapists and life coaches made 40% of the church go schedule counseling sessions after that one Sunday. Remember, people need to be led. We just got to lead them to the right spaces and the right places. So in in one moment, 15 minutes sitting side by side with my life coach and letting her talk more than I did the first 15 minutes of that message made 40% of the congregation go, I think I should get some counsel. Mm. <laughs> so we have a lot of influence and if we were just do it correctly, we could help a lot of people. Yeah, I said this on another podcast, but I think so much of leadership and then on this issue specifically is we need pastors to go first. You know, we need you to lead first and take that step, which is difficult when we've got the barriers of, uh, you know, sometimes it's not safe for the pastor to go first. Mm -hmm. There's lots of condemnation or judgment or there's narcissism that's in the way. There's a lot of barriers, but the power of just saying, hey, I'll go first. Let me talk about me and sit up here with my coach and talk about the benefit is so extremely powerful. I think the more that we can um, demystify pastors, demystify mental health professionals, mm-hmm. uh, take t- take remove all the stigmas, um, and and really just have frank conversations about what it is and what it is not. Um the better off we would be. But but to your point, Kimberly, we need some brave leaders to stop caring how much um, about the way people think about them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to lead a congregation if, if they're actually your constituency. That's, man, talk about like, systemic issues that have been exposed the last 18 months to two years. 
I mean, that that's actually one I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Like, Kimberly, I know you and I have talked about this a lot just as we sideline and process our just personal experience of the last season. I don't think people realize – like, I have had to do a lot of things where I've had to, like, fill out a conflict of interest form. Like, you got to do that in research. You got to do that, like, all sorts, all sorts of things. And it just feels like such a racket. I get it. I hate that red tape stuff. It just gets in my way and costs me time. My eight just, like, goes, Ugh. but, <laughs> but I have seen so much of the, oh, this is a conflict of interest for you to lead. Like over the last 18 months. Oh, this is a, you can't make that choice because that person pays your bills or that person is your constituent or, oh, you're in the seat of leadership. But what is it from like that? My big fat Greek wedding, when she's talking about men and women, she's like, men are the head, but women are the neck. We turn the head, you know, right? Right, right, right. And so I look at things even organizationally over the last season where it's like, well, yeah, who's the technical head on this, but who's the neck? And, and in front, you know, your layer, like, these are my, these are, this is my flock. These are my constituents. These are my, I mean, we, we could just, we could probably unpack that for hours. I think a lot of those conflicts have been exposed over the last 18 months. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and this is, you know, just to clarify, I have a congregation of people that that I've been given a mandate to lead, but they are not my constituents. With constituents, I have to come into agreement with them. I want their vote. Mm-hmm. Right. I want their support. Okay. No, good, good I have a congregation. I have a flock. I'm leading you. If you don't like where I'm leading you, you can stop following. Yeah. But I'm not going to stop from going this way. But Tim... The fact that you can say that is because you have done your health work. Aha, uh-huh, which is of- why we're on this. This is why I wanted to say it. <laughs> this is why I wanted to say it. <laughs> it's because yes. I've done this work that I can self-differentiate myself from the yes. people that I lead. And most leaders can't do that because they haven't done their mental health work, which is why we're doing this podcast, because we hope some pastors <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> We're going to be spamming all their inboxes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Somebody sent me this. I'm sending it to you. Yeah. Yeah. But for fear of what they think our profession's impact would be on them, they become the very thing that they're afraid of. Agreed. It's a really nasty cycle. It is. It is. You guys. That deserved that deserved a sea lot moment. That's why I just Yeah. Yeah. Take that one in real quick. <laughs> yeah. Tiny pivot. Still a part of the conversation. Because I think it adds significant texture and nuance part of the 1a like you said we've got health pandemic we've got also a racial pandemic that has shown up gotten louder been there for a long time what 
would you say the impact of race, culture? I think generally, so it's a little bit of a two-part question, generally speaking, but then also as it's lit up over the last couple of years, 18 months, um, in responding to naming mental health needs. So as those worlds began to show up together, yeah. What thoughts do you have on that? Yeah. So um, the the racial stuff that hit, I, I I think one of the things that cannot be underestimated is the generational trauma mm-hmm. that racial conflict stirs back up. Mm-hmm. When you've been traumatized for generations, um, it doesn't matter if the black man or woman in 2021 has $14 million in their bank account and lives in on Martha's Vineyard, <laughs> okay? When, when something like this hits the news, at a bone marrow level, <laughs> their ancestors are flinching. And they feel it. So while they might not be having the same experience, their their DNA has. Yes. And that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, we, we would never we would never um play Hitler's speeches and then ask Jewish people, why are you so unsettled? Well, look where you are. You're, you know, Nazi Germany's dead and why why would you still be flinching i I mean it would be preposterous for us to do that right so so there's there's this there's this kind of generational trauma uh that exists uh but once again for um those uh african americans black people um that have done their mental health work such as myself my best friend corey my, my wife, kids, my parents who have been, oh, they have been stellar. They grew up in, my my parents are Black History Month. My, my parents are American history. They, you know, we're not talking about five generations ago of anything. We're talking about, go ask Maxine Ross uh, about her childhood and she'll say, yeah, we had to drink from the colored water fountain. Not my grandmama, not my great-grandmama. My mama. <laughs> Birmingham, Alabama. She remembers the bus boycotts, right? Which I really wish all black people remembered the bus boycotts because the boy- the bus boycotts were over in about 30 days because uh, black people not riding white people's buses hit them for a million dollars. Which inflate that it's several it was a multi-million dollar hit to their organization and before you knew it black people could sit wherever they want they wanted to on the bus if they if black people knew the power of their dollar (laughs) then they would really hit institutions that perpetuate racism uh where where they would feel it because marching ain't doing it if you march your dollar out of their company they will come begging you 
to figure out what do I need to do to change? Okay. So I really wish people would, would study that. All that being said, um, I think mental health plays a huge um, role in uh, minority communities, not just black communities, but uh, all minority communities in getting over um, the trauma of whatever country they, they've had to go up in. I mean, a person that moves from Cuba to America thinks that Cuba that thinks that America is the best place that's ever been created, no matter what the mm-hmm. present circumstances may be. But they still need to get over their Cuban trauma. Right? And and you can't process that by burning your your own target down. Right? Mm-hmm. By looting your Walmart. That's not helping you get over your trauma. It's it's the collective cry of what happens when trauma's not let out because whatever doesn't come up and out through our words will come up and out through our bodies. So uh, when I heard, you know, several white people ask me last year, I just don't understand why black people would burn up their their own their own community. My my retort was, I want you to imagine coming home and you you saw your spouse in the bed with another person. Would you throw a lamp? Would you grab a bat, start swinging? <laughs> Would you break some dishes? Would, your response in that moment is based on the pain that you feel in that moment. And usually when somebody's in pain, they grab the thing closest to them and mm-hmm. they let they let some of that pain out. Well, if that happens at, for an individual, it happens for communities as well. Martin Luther King Jr. said it more eloquently than I did, but I, I gave it my best shot. So I, I, ju- I, just, I just think that um, men- mental health professionals, if the, if, if, uh, if the stigma was removed around mental health for just the black community, Y'all would be multimillionaire. Just the black community. If we could convince them all, go process your pain. Mm-hmm. Oh, y'all would have y'all would have an Aspen house <laughs> replacing every liquor store in the hood. Right? Because that's what needs to go there. Um, but I'll give you, I'll give you one instance as to what makes uh, systemic injustice, we'll call it that since the other word is such a, you know, mm-hmm. divisive word. Uh, th- there's there's an um, organization in South Dallas called In the City for Good. It's a double entendre. They're in the city for good, but they're also in the city for good, right? They're not leaving. And it's a group of uh, wealthy white uh uh, professionals, men predominantly, who's they all grew up in South Dallas, and then when uh, African Americans moved in, the white flight took them out. Their parents took them out, but they're like, "That's our community, and we love it." So we're in the in the community for good. So in one zip code, uh, 
in South Dallas, there are 37 liquor stores and one grocery store. They wanted to put um, some transitional housing for people coming off of drugs uh, in that same neighborhood. It took them five years to get a license to put something that would impact the community in a good way, helping people transition off of drugs, providing them with um, professional help, uh, n- not just to get jobs, but on a mental level as well. So so mental yeah. health was, was a part of this process for them. It wasn't the, what do you call it? The new, new tropic or the new? Nuthetic. Nuthetic, okay. It wasn't nuthetic, so it wasn't just, oh, I'm just going to read the Bible and then your whole brain's going to heal, right? It was mm-hmm. it was the integrated uh, uh, therapy where we're going to use scripture and we're going to use um, best practices. Took them five years to get that license. Wow. It takes 66 days to get a liquor license. That's systemic. We'd rather you medicate this pain you have than process it. Hmm. So here's 35, here's 37 options to get a 40 ounce of beer or some Mad Dog 2020. (laughs) But it'll take you five years if you want to actually process your pain and move on. There is something so deeply sad uh, and metaphorically profound to me in this moment. Kimberly, correct me if I'm wrong, or I'm just going to ask you, what's the textbook answer for the length of time it takes to do trauma work with talk therapy? Five to seven years. Yeah. So like when you said that five year thing, I was like, that's a metaphor for systemic trauma. Wow. Wow. That's sobering. Yeah. And there's, there are, you know, for those thinking like I've got trauma work, I need to go do it. Oh my gosh, I can't sign up for that. There, there are interventions now that are more efficient you will not promise fast but efficient shout out to emdr um but when you said that i was like oh that's trauma work it's always longer than anybody wants it to be it's always more expensive than anybody wants it to be it's always slower than anybody wants it to be and that is existing on that level too yeah i I mean listen you know you can go back and and watch all the cartel movies, right? Pablo Escobar and, you know, the uh, Sinaloa cartels. I'm big into all that kind of stuff. My older brother founded a gang, and so I got a gangster side to me, right? So I'm fascinated by the height, the the structure of organized crime. Uh, Cocaine is the biggest export from South America to North America for one reason and one reason only. It's medicating people's trauma. Mm. Liquor stores exist for one reason. To medicate people's trauma. (laughs) 
right? There's only a few kind of, there's only a few people that have a two wine glass limit. Mm. And that's usually the people that have processed their trauma. <laughs> and can just enjoy the wine. And can just enjoy the wine for what it is, right? Right? And 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 pick up on the notes of tree bark that's in the you know <laughs> the base I, of I this. like that you picked like the most <laughs> Terrible thing I'd want to put in my mouth. Right. Like, you could so, have gone with like cherries or anything no, like tree bark. Tree bark. Like, mm, I can my palate is so sophisticated <laughs> I can taste the tree bark in it, right? So but you look at you 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 look at it, South Dallas, right? Thirty seven liquor stores, and and you look at Central Market in a, a well to do neighborhood, a a a, mm-hmm. a um a Whole Foods, a, a and there's a big wine aisle. They, they both getting, they're both getting drunk. <laughs> right? They're both medicating their pain. One just looks better. Mm-hmm. It's a wine aisle. I would never go to a liquor store. I've never heard of Specs. <laughs> Who would dare enter an establishment like that? But you took every bottle off the rack of the wine we're all medicating pain in some way, and um, those that process it are are able to stay away from the unhealthy outlets at a better rate. Mm. Does it sound like I've had some work done? <laughs> it sounds like you've done your work, Tim, and I love it I can it see so your much. work. <laughs> Thank you. Good, I can see your work, and you did a good job. Your work job. is showing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just reflecting because I'm thinking, I mean, Tim, you know me personally, um, and like I would, I would take on the world if I could. And so conversations like this just like rile me up on the inside and I have to go, and then I have to go do my work. Okay, so let's just talk about that. We're like, oh, I cannot be the savior of the world. What is mine? What is not? I have this other version of that that comes out where I literally would kill myself running races that aren't mine to run because I just get so fired up. So I have feelings right now, y'all. Understandable. Yeah, understandable for sure. I'm curious, Tim your thoughts on how the mental health community could respond better in two directions to the needs of faith and church communities, but also racial minorities within the church. How could the mental health community respond better? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'll, I'll answer this two ways. Well, I, I'll answer this the way that I've, feel it. When I hear you say respond, the only word I keep that keeps coming in my head is initiate. Mm-hmm. And I just keep hearing ask, seek, knock. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like th- this is one of those things that, you know, nobody knew they needed this iPhone until Steve Jobs said so. Nobody was asking for it. Everybody was fine with their Motorola Razors and their T-Mobile sidekicks, right? And they were just yeah, living like you had that flip razor. That was oh, a big deal. Oh, you were, you were it. Nobody was asking for a piece of glass they could touch, right? And and then Steve Jobs said, 
y'all need this. And we went, oh my God, how did we ever live without this? Right. (laughs) So I think, I think there's a as seek not component to that. I don't want the mental health sector to become discouraged when people don't open the door. Like my encouragement is keep asking, keep seeking and keep knocking, keep making yourself available and keep telling people you need us because they do. They may not know it until, until they actually are receptive to it. But, but I I really do feel like y'all need to really keep telling people, this is why you need us. Because it's the truth. If we don't have you all doing what you do, we are not going to be okay. I told I told our church, the only reason why I haven't cussed y'all out is because of my therapist. <laughs> the only re- I, I told them on a Sunday morning, here's the reason why you haven't been cussed out by me. Here's the reason why I haven't struck the rock twice and cursed you all to die. And thrown down tablets until they broke, and walked out on you, and had four affairs, and stole all the money, and went to Fiji and never came back. Because I process. I've done my work. I've done my work, and so and so y'all are so important. And uh, my encouragement is to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking, because there's going to be someone that opens the door. For every, you know, 11 doors that shut in your face. No, we don't want you in here. No, we, we are we are okay. Well, we know you're not. But just in case, <laughs> keep our card. Right? And uh, so I don't know if I answered your question correctly, Kimberly. But I, 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 when I hear response, I hear reactive. And when I say initiate, I just hear proactive. Like, just stay proactive in your approach to offering what you know is going to help people. That's good. In the same way, I don't wait for a crisis to offer people Jesus. (laughs) Right. That's, that's my encouragement. Let's not wait until everything hits the fan and then go, Hey, uh, you want, you want some of this? Y'all open for some of this. It's like, it's like I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you before you crack. I already see symptoms, right? I, I had, I got to tell you this funny story, and I promise I'll shut up. Uh, I was in, I went to uh, DFW Airport to go fly somewhere to go preach somewhere. So I'm, I'm in, the, I'm at Terminal D. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I'm, I'm in Terminal D, and I'm in the first double door. You know from the outside, the first double doors, and then there's a space, and then there's the next double doors, and then you're actually in the terminal, okay? So I'm in between those terminals, and I'm adjusting my bags, and I guess my backpack, and maybe my ear pods, and this guy walks in through the first double doors in the space in between, getting into the terminal, and before the the next double doors open, he sees how long the line is for the terminal, and he lets out the loudest expletive (laughs) <laughs> he says the f word so loud right there in that middle space to the top of his lungs i bet it was cathartic 
bro. <laughs> I get, like, literally, so I'll say duck instead of the word, right? Because sure. I, I got to give you the, like, volume and stuff. He he walks in, he looks at the line, and he's like, duck! I mean, it is just <laughs> so loud. And the first thing I thought is, that line didn't do that to him. That line is not why that guy said that. That line was the straw that broke the camel's back in this man's life. And he couldn't hold it anymore. (laughs) And it all came out before he could even walk into the terminal. And that's what we're trying to get. That's what, what you all help us not get to the point of. Yeah. Yeah. So, I feel like that word picture so beautifully kind of captures, I don't know, the sense of urgency that I feel about this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you do too. Um, and also captures some of the specific questions about, hey, this current season that our world is in, like the things that are coming up for us. Like I just think emotional margin is strapped like it's gone we've we've way exceeded our threshold and and we're all screaming duck at the top of our lungs it's the truth we really are we really are we're posting it we're we're saying it we're acting it out we are you're absolutely right in a world that had very little emotional margin to begin with Mm-hmm. Anyway, right? Because think about it. There's two things that made 2020 make people go crazy. It, it, it wasn't just the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The pandemic was, was, was one part of it. I'm going to tell you what another major contributing factor was. It was the fact that it cut down. It, it almost made the production of, of our distractions disappear as well. Oh, yeah. You couldn't self-medicate with your poison of choice. Sports wasn't there. So football season's gone. Basketball season's gone. Right? Uh, baseball season's gone. Uh, your your theaters are closed. Your, your favorite shows are out of production, and you don't want to watch the reruns. Um, oh, yeah. And so people are like, you've taken away, like, I wasn't doing drugs, and I wasn't, you know, you know, drinking myself into a stupor, but I was watching Netflix for seven hours. (laughs) And that's been taken away. Oh my gosh, Tim. Okay, here's what's happening for me. And and I have said this on other episodes. And 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 I understand the desperation that's driving the statement. I don't think the statement is a very good solution. I just want things to go back to the way they were, right? Like that thing. And I am sitting here going, the problems that you are having right now pre-existed the pandemic. Yes, they did. To your point about Mr. Duck, he just wants the line to go away. And you're sitting here going, the line's not your problem. That's right. We're not not going back to the way it used to be. That's right. And as you list off this, I'm so glad you've noted it, this factor, this component of the 
buzz and anxiety and angstiness of our world is like we lost all of our <clears throat> mostly behavioral self medications, but there's some others too. Mm-hmm. I have watched some of those industries, organizations that had to stop for a minute, put themselves on an idolized platform as the answer. I have, I have watched that. Oh, we can solve the angst because it's because we disappeared. Now we need to come back. That's the reason we need to come back because we, I have watched, I have watched that claim pretty pervasively. And as you're like wow. saying that, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 So, and it's still focusing on the line. That's not the actual problem. That's exactly right. The line's not the problem. Line's not the problem. It's not about the nail. Yeah, the, yeah <laughs> exactly. Just seen that video. Not about yeah, the nail. That's a, that's a great. That's a great skit too. Yeah, the line's not the problem. Wow. Oh, Tim, I always love conversations with you. This is why. Ah, okay. Thank you. All right, sir. We always wrap up our dialogue with two questions. Okay. So my first question for you is what would you like the audience to take away from our conversation today? What do you want to leave them with? The thing I would like for them to take away is that um, everyone has an individual responsibility to Mm. work on themselves. And that if you would just focus on doing your work, the line would become a non-issue to you. Mm, amen. I, I went in that terminal to go stand in the same line that guy did. The only thing different between line? me. Huh? It's a terrible line. line. It's a terrible line. The only difference between he and I is that our perspectives were different. Mm. I didn't, that line wasn't another reminder of how bad my life was. That line was just a line because I'm able to self-differentiate and compartmentalize and hold space for all the stuff that's in my life and they don't have to touch each other in a bad way for me to Mm -hmm. think I'm a bad person. That other guy couldn't do that. So my takeaway is do your own work. The thing I want to leave you with is to always remember and never forget that you're a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. You are valuable. Your life matters. Mm -hmm. Your feelings matter. And you deserve to be heard. Okay, Tim. Final question. What's your takeaway? What are you taking away from our time together today? You know what? Um, I'm, I'm going to make this very personal to myself. C- having the conversation with you all today has made me realize how much work I've done. Mm-hmm. And how much more observant I am of the world because of the work I've done. 
Um, mm-hmm. I was made aware a couple of times in our conversation, like, like at my own surprise, like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty attuned mm-hmm. to <laughs> uh, some cultural ramifications and some, you, you know, things that I guess because I'm always thrown around in my own head as a two, I'm Enneagram two, and I'm always thrown <laughs> around in my own head and I'm an assertive advocate, you know, INFJ. Um, so I'm always in my head. I, I, I very rarely am in spaces where I get to talk it out mm. like this. You know, mm-hmm. most church people are not asking me questions about this. Um, so I don't get to, I don't get to go there, but mm-hmm. I'm, I think I was pleasantly surprised at my attunement because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm an empathizer, you know? And so I, I, I feel people. And so, um, both y'all are, you're like yeah. human thermometers. <laughs> yeah. The atmosphere can change and I'll know it. Mm-hmm. I will know it and I will know who did it. <laughs> I'll be like, you touched the thermostat. <laughs> both y'all. Both you, you, both of you have a scary level of being able to do that, mm. but you have well, that similarity. So that I think that's my takeaway. It's it's a personal one. So mm-hmm. okay, Tim, thank you so much for the gift of your time and your words and your attunement. It's been such a joy. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you. Love you, friend. I love you, too. (laughs) Tim Ross is one of my favorite human beings. (laughs) He's so great. Delightful. I I feel very blessed and privileged. To, to have a personal friendship with him in my life. So he is just ugh, my, my, my bubs. I mean, he really is. He is, he's mm-hmm. like another brother that I needed and God knew that. Yeah. Oh, uh, so rich. It went all sorts of places. Uh, so I'm curious what your takeaway was. Gosh. Yeah. I think it's a hard question because I have a lot of them. Um, I, you know, I think the ability to, I think, you know, sometimes say the unsayable thing sometimes in, in a way that is, um, that's Tim's kind of mission in the world is to upset us for the better. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, his, his work and his book. And so I think, um, just, we need to do more of that. We need to be able to go, what is that? What is that about? Let me push on that. Let me challenge that. Let me be willing to upset what we've commonly accepted or not looked at or wanted to walk into as we think about mental health and the church and all the other subjects that we talked about today. So mm-hmm. just um, willingness to – for for – the good of others have these conversations that are sometimes, you know, a little bit uncomfortable, but like yeah. so needed in, yeah. in our world. What about for you? What, what would you say your takeaway is? 
I kind of have two. Um, one a little bit more lighthearted. I just so deeply appreciated how he talked about generational differences from the perspective of this is the gift of each generation mm-hmm. to the church and the system of the church, you know? Um, yeah. I think oftentimes, at least I have felt this way in the last decade, that the, the generational tension has been that. It's been more um, kind of strife with each other in our differences and how development has, has, has given us some uniquenesses. Um, he just had this really beautiful way of going, Hey, here's the gift of this one. And this and this one. And it was just mm-hmm. honoring of all, of everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I will, I will take that with me as, as a, a, a sound bite, sound bites and nuggets to, to use, but real similarly to you, I, I think as we unpacked today, we were really trying to, you know, he uses the word upset. Like you're saying, you and I talk about disrupting things for good. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and I love that role. So yeah, like this, just this disruption of not just talking about the systemic issues, but like what is maintaining and contributing to their health, these, these mm-hmm. problematic issues. And I think what I loved about this conversation, and I think Tim brings this in his presence and in his dialogue is it was like a willingness to name some really hard things. So yeah, my takeaway is just the beauty of, you know, like-minded people gathering around and being able to name those things together in a way that felt he was actually trying to, I think, love everyone well. Like, this mm-hmm. isn't good for mm-hmm. anyone. And so we're going to talk about these things. It was not an attack. It was a invitation and a exploratory surgery and a nuanced dialogue. And so, yeah, yeah, a lot of that is, is percolating and marinating and all, all of the words. Yeah, so good. So thankful for Tim. Thank you for joining us. Arable Podcast is hosted by Jenna Mountain and Kimberly Galindo. And edited and co-produced by Chris Vargas and hosted on Podbean. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Visit our website, arablepodcast.com, and find Arable Podcasts on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find both of us on Facebook. You can find me, Kimberly Galindo, on Instagram at the Kimberly Galindo. And me, Jenna Mountain, on Instagram at the Jenna Mountain. 